Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics, always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest returning will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. He is Dr. Jeff Berger, who is an internist and specialist in the treatment of alcoholism and drug addiction. Today, he's going to inform us about alcohol and the abuse of alcohol. But before we get to that, we want to invite our listeners to attend the 2021 Annual Educational Conference of the Catholic Medical Association. We believe that many of our medical professional colleagues, as well as students, are aching to reconnect in person after a superabundance of online virtual meetings. This year's topic is the joy of medicine, and the conference will be held at the family-friendly Caribe Royale in Orlando, Florida, October 7th through the 9th. All of the rooms are suites. There's activities like crazy for families and their kids. And Tom, you got to tell our listeners about really something I've never heard of, which is a money-back guarantee program from the Catholic Medical Association. People have enjoyed our conferences so much that we're offering a refund of our annual dues to anybody who is a new member of the CMA in 2021, and that's anyone who's joined from January on for the first time, and who attends the conference. We can't refund the conference fees, but we can refund the membership dues. So if you attend the conference and don't think you grow in your faith or in fellowship or in your intellectual formation, uh, we will refund those annual dues. Uh, for more information, you, know, you can sign up online at cathmed.org or call our office. Our keynote speaker this year will be an incredible former Swiss guard who's now Dean of the Business School down at University of St. Thomas. His name is Mario Ensler. He's incredibly humorous, and he's going to share stories about the joy of St. John Paul II. And Tom, you and I have both have heard Professor Ensler speak before, and it is impossible to hear him speak and not come away changed. He is a remarkable speaker. Amen um, to that. In fact, he, he spoke at a conference I chaired, a smaller conference, and every single person gave him a five out of five. That's unheard of. Absolutely. The conference is especially geared for physicians, for nurses, for students of all flavors, and other professionals who may be sensing a loss of their joy uh, and the loss of, of their professional lives, you might say, and they're looking for ways to rekindle that joy. And even if you personally don't experience a joy deficit in your life, getting together in person with like-minded colleagues from around the country is sure to energize you. I can't say enough about the CMA in this conference. You've just got to come. For more, more information, as Tom said, go to the CMA website, cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. And we're doing this episode on alcohol for a number of reasons. It appears that about one-eighth of all the alcohol sold in the U.S. goes to underage drinkers. You know, and like we've talked before, when there's an issue or a concern, if you follow the money, it often leads you to the root uh, of the issue. And we're talking about a lot of money, about $21 billion, with a B, uh, of $208 billion in 2011, and $17.5 billion out of $237 billion and $2016 is related to alcohol. There's a lot of money at stake. That, that's alcohol in kids. Yeah, oh, underage absolutely. kids. So we're gonna explore this topic, but first, our medical trivia question of the day, category, alcohol and the brain. So there was a study recently done, 25,000 British adults over the age of 55. They compared daily alcohol consumption to MRI scans of the brain and how much gray matter they had in the brain and that's where you do your thinking that is the most important part of your brain for being a human being so the question what level of alcohol use was associated with the highest volume of gray matter the most intellectual underlying ability was it zero one two three or four drinks a day and one drink being equivalent to an ounce of alcohol you're gonna have to stay tuned till the end of the show to get the answer here on dr doctor but we'll be back with dr jeff berger after the break Welcome back to our special guest interview on today's episode of Dr. Doctor. We have with us, talking about alcohol, Dr. Jeff Berger. He finished a residency in internal medicine and is also trained in addiction medicine and working in that field since 1983. He's the medical director for Guest House in Lake Orion, Michigan, which was founded in 1956 as a lay-run treatment center for Catholic clergy, Catholic men and women religious who have addictive 
disorders. He's a father of six children. He's been married to Anne for 44 years, who has still survived his sense of humor. And I'm sure my wife can relate to that, but not for quite as many years. Jeff, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thank you, Tom. Uh, Jeff, let's start basic. What is alcohol? Yeah, I think that nicest way to begin that is to talk about how it's made. So what you do is you take a, some kind of sugar source and you can use any kind of sugar. Um, you can use grapes, you can use honey, you can use mare's milk. Anything that has sugar in it is fair game uh, for producing alcohol. You put it in with a bunch of uh, microorganisms and they begin to chew on the sugar and eat it up for energy. And what happens is that as they make, as they go through that process and utilize the sugar, metabolize the sugar, one of the waste products that comes out as a result of metabolizing the sugar is uh, C2H5OH, which is alcohol. So Tom, I don't wanna gross anybody out, but when you take a drink of alcohol, what you're really drinking is yeast pee. <laughs> so it's a byproduct of yeast, which is necessary to ferment the sugar into alcohol. That's correct. And actually, if you think about it, um, what happens is that naturally occurring alcohols usually have a concentration somewhere around between 5%. And the reason for that is, is because as the concentrations rise higher than 5%, the alcohol begins to kill the organisms that are producing it. Fascinating. So you can't get a high concentration of alcohols. Now, if you get something like uh, Mad Dog 2020, which has a 20% uh, alcohol content, or you take the more stylish uh, port, those alcohols have a higher alcohol content or Molson ice. And what happens is that the manufacturers have just taken pure ethanol and added it back into the mixture. But those are no longer naturally produced alcohols. So, so when did that begin? When did... Uh, purveyors of alcohol for consumption start adding pure alcohol in? Is that relatively recent in human history? Well, the search for more concentrated alcohol, it really began um, in uh, about the time of the Crusades when oh. a lot of the chemistry from uh, the Arabic countries was brought over into Western Europe and distillation was one of those processes. And people began to apply that to wine and beer and to distill them driving you know taking out more of the water and leaving a more concentrated beverage behind got it and they began adding pure alcohol back into um, grain beverages somewhere around the 1600s 1700s that's when port began to be produced for example and what percent alcohol might port be uh 17 percent what would the typical wine percent alcohol have been around the time of Christ? Probably around 3 to 4%. And what is a typical wine now? About 6 to 7%. Okay, about twice as much, not radically different. Uh, so, And there are other types of alcohol. Alcohol is actually a, a class of chemicals, isn't it? That's correct. Um, so there are other kinds that are used. There's methanol for example, which is very similar to alcohol. Um, methanol actually is interesting because it's what you use to, of course, uh, will pickle people. Um, so it's if people are making alcohol, for example, out of sterno cans, um, there's a good deal of methanol that's produced. Um, and if they're drinking that, then the methanol, when they drink it, can actually produce blindness. Um, so when I was doing my residency in a inner city hospital, when we got that kind of person, the treatment was to give them alcohol because then they're so busy. There's so much alcohol in their system. Uh, the methanol gets metabolized and they uh, safely without causing blindness. So that's what one of the few times when alcohol is actually indicated is as a, a treatment because it kind of uh, competes for the same receptors as the methanol, right? Yeah. It, well, it's, it, again, that's another interesting thing about methanol, uh, about ethanol. If you think about drugs, for example, like morphine, you're talking about milligrams. Yes. When you're talking about alcohol, you're talking about grams. So there's an order of magnitude of about a thousand there. Alcohol affects neurotransmitters and affects receptors, but it does so by membrane effects. Oh. It's not specific to any receptors. 
Very good. So is, that's another interesting thing about alcohol is, it, is there isn't an alcohol receptor, for example, but it does disorder membranes. And that's how it, it has a lot of the effects that it has. And then alcohol, isopropyl alcohol is yet different. We use it as a topical disinfectant, antiseptic, right? That's correct. Although I, I have a friend who is now 30 years in recovery, but during his active days, uh, uh, early in his medical career, uh, when he was locked up without any other recourse to alcohol, he'd be drinking isopropyl alcohol. Oh, does that harm you like methanol does? Uh, not like methanol, but it sure it makes you really sick. <laughs> so how does alcohol affect the human body? I know that's a big, wide open question. Yeah, it, uh, Tom, there's not any organ that I can think of in the body that isn't capable of being adversely affected by alcohol. Um, one thing that it does, we know, is that it, it uh, disrupts membrane function. It fuses intracellular proteins, and, and that that's not really producing a good effect <laughs> on the body. Um, so it has a dose-related effect, so sure. that the uh, more you drink, uh, the more harm there's done to various parts of your body. What's the nutritional value of alcohol? Because it does have calories. It, alcohol in the human body is ultimately metabolized to glucose. And that's Just like all. our carbohydrates. Yep, that's it. Unless there's something else that's in the drink that might be contributing some other kind of nutritional value. But alcohol so itself is metabolized. So there's seven, seven calories per gram, right? whereas there's four calories per gram for a carbohydrate. Yeah. And actually, that's one of the things that makes alcohol use in a diabetic so uh, precarious because immediately what happens is that alcohol causes hypoglycemia. Uh, and then ultimately, it produces, um, as it's metabolized to sugar, they, it produces a hyperglycemia. So uh, you, the diabetic is... is can get into trouble either with hypoglycemia or hyperglycemia, uh, depending on how much they're drinking. Wow. Let's get into so-called health benefits of alcohol. There seems to be a cottage industry of publishing articles trying to prove um, health benefits of alcohol. What does the latest evidence show? Are there actually some benefits in some organs of the body? Yeah, there's some cardiovascular benefits of, of modest alcohol consumption. Of course, every alcoholic I've ever talked to tells me that they're drinking because their cardiologist told them <laughs> that they should be drinking. <laughs> when I ask them how much their cardiologist told them they should be drinking, they generally say two drinks. And I ask them how much they're drinking, and they say two drinks. And I ask them how much is in a drink, and they say 10 ounces. And I said, that's not what your cardiologist is talking about. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it, I think another way of looking at this is to look at it. If you were to, if you were to market alcohol yes. to improve serum lipid um, concentrations or to improve cardiac out, you know, function, um, you'd never get the drug approved through the Food and Drug Administration. Because? There's simply too many toxic side effects with alcohol uh, to have it ever be approved for medicinal use. That's an excellent point. And there's been health effects shown with any other organ systems besides the heart, or is that pretty much the only one? As far as I know, that's the only organ that, that's the only one that I'm aware of, Tom, that, that, that there's been any putative evidence for alcohol being okay. beneficial. Very good. So G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite authors uh, who enjoyed his wine and port. He said, we should thank God for beer and Burgundy by not drinking too much of them. So is there a rule of thumb about how much is too much alcohol to drink? Oh, boy. Well, for an uh, alcoholic who's in recovery, one drop is too much to drink. Yes. Okay. So, and for somebody who's an alcoholic who's practicing, one drop is too much to be drinking. Yes. Okay, so the question is, if you have somebody who's not got the disease, the active disease, or isn't recovering from the active disease, what is the, uh, how much is too much? And, yes. you know, I think the best way to think about that is 
the uh, National Institute of Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse put out some pretty good data on um, how much alcohol is too much. So more than um, in an evening, one evening a week, even a woman drinking more than two drinks or a man drinking more than four drinks, or in the course of the whole week, a woman drinking more than five drinks or a male drinking more than 14 drinks is considered at-risk drinking. Because we know that uh, in that population, the rate of alcoholism around 30 to 40 percent, whereas in the general population, it's only 10 percent. That's a, that's a good rule of thumb. And, and uh, what about an optimal amount? Is there an optimal amount of alcohol? I mean, I've seen this from the NIH saying one ounce a day for women, two ounces for men. Does that have any role? Yeah, that's not really optimal. Um, because again, if you're looking at it, I don't know that anybody has actually proved uh, exactly what dose of alcohol might possibly be related to health benefits. And even so, I, you know, if you if you have congestive heart failure and you drink half a glass of, of half a shot of scotch each day, um, that's less than what the NIH would say is. Um, worrisome. And yet we know that 33% of alcoholics have, when they're biopsied, when their cardiac muscle is biopsied, have evidence of cardiomyopathy induced by alcohol. So for somebody with congestive heart failure, half a shot a day is way too much of alcohol. So Jeff, here's a question that I'm sort of afraid to hear the answer to, and it's about Catholics and drinking. Back in 2014, Robert Christian wrote an online article where he talks about a some people might call a cringe-worthy double standard, and how Catholics think about alcohol maybe compared to other um, virtuous members of other faiths—Protestant, Buddhist, etc. Is there some big blind spot for us as serious Catholics? Are are we too accepting as a faith? I think about a joke that a friend of mine told me once, where he said, "You know why Catholics never clap at events?" Uh, and the punchline is because you can't clap with a glass in your hand. Uh, so, <laughs> so give us, give us the lowdown on ourselves and when it comes to alcohol, if you would. Well, we know there are genetic predispositions to alcoholism. That's pretty clear, um, at least on population studies. So I don't think we understand that on a molecular basis yet. But um, so there are populations, for example, the uh, Arabic populations have chosen not to drink as a population because they're very susceptible to the disease of alcoholism. I'm Native American in part, and my, my people also don't do well with alcohol, so I don't mean to be discriminatory in any kind of way. Uh, in those populations, the more, the more people that drink, the more alcoholics you're going to have, and you're going to have a sizable number of alcoholics. Um, in populations where there's not um, a lot of drinking going on, where there's not a genetic susceptibility, or where there's, where there's not, the culture is not heavy alcohol users, then you won't get many alcoholics. Mm. So I think that kind of depends then what I'm saying is both on the genetic susceptibility of, the, of whoever's drinking and also in a culture wide, how prevalent is alcohol use? We know that the more people that are drinking and the more they drink, the more likely some of them are going to be alcoholic. So is it is it fair to say, as a, as a self-criticism, that we might be too accepting as a faith, so to speak, to excessive consumption of alcohol? I think it might be fair to say that, in general, people tend to think of alcoholism as a, as a moral problem that some people have and don't look at it in terms of, are we protecting the weak and vulnerable among us? Mm. Oh, good points all. Well, let's go back to G.K. Chesterton, who also said, drink because you're happy, never because you're miserable. <laughs> never drink when you are wretched without it, but drink when, when, you, when you would be happy without it, and you will be like the laughing peasant of Italy. What do you think about that advice that we shouldn't drink when we're down, but may drink when we're up? Well, let me go about it this way. There's, this, there's a poem that circulates in AA circles. And it goes something, starts out something like this. I drank because I was happy. When I was sad, I drank so that I would be happy. 
when it was stormy outside, I drank because I needed to be cheered up. And when it's sunny outside, I drank so that I could be even cheerier than I was on a sunny day. And the list goes on and on and on and on. It, sure. Both of these things are talking about a certain state of mind. Um, it's a state of mind where um, the mind is actually hiding um, the effect of alcohol and the attraction of alcohol from the person that's using it. So when Chesterton, the alcoholic in recovery, can laugh at himself and say, my mind was always convincing me that there was a reason to drink. Well, Chesterton is saying the same thing. If your mind is telling you that you should drink, then you probably shouldn't drink. He's saying that there's, if you're experiencing what we used to call a compulsion for alcohol or a desire for alcohol or a craving for alcohol, then you, you need to be cautious about using alcohol. It almost makes me think of sort of the uh, quasi punchline I heard once. If if wanting a drink changes into needing a drink, something bad is going on. Yes. There's another AA progression of drinking that goes, the man takes a drink, the drink takes a drink, and then the drink takes the man. <laughs> Again, this is talking about the progression of the disease of alcoholism. But you, again, you begin to see that a lot of things are implied in that, including a loss of volitional control over what one is drinking. Mm. So is alcohol a gateway drug? Are, are those who consume it more likely to misuse drugs? If you look across the board, both in my clinical experience and also if you look at the data that's emerging now, you see that um, marijuana, nicotine, and alcohol are all drugs that people use by and large before they start using drugs like uh, heroin or hydrocodone or cocaine or methamphetamine. Uh, so in that sense, I think that you could call them a gateway drug, although that uh, concept has probably been so ridiculed and so misunderstood and has so many different meanings to different people that it's probably not a real good um, phrase to use when you're talking about that. Hmm. Well, as a segue in a matter of speaking, teenagers are often drinkers or at least tempted to drink. Is there something special about adolescence and early post-adolescence uh, when it comes to alcohol and the propensity to develop alcoholism? Oh, absolutely. If you look at this, I mean, if you look at what happens in the central nervous system, we know that um, the brain develops uh, functional and preferred pathways all the way through the age of about 25 or 26. And if a person is drinking during that time period uh, and experiencing the pleasure of drinking, uh, making associations with drinking, um, those are all going to influence uh, later behavior. And alcohol itself, don't forget, is a toxin. I'm, back when I was a tiny doctor and my hair was black rather than gray like it is now, um, uh, the treatment for tic dolorou, which is a very painful spasm of a facial nerve, was actually yes. uh, to inject 100% alcohol into the body of the nerve, which killed the nerve. So if you're giving a a nerve central you know a nervous cell toxin when you're young you're distorting both the nerves and you're uh, interfering in their ability to form proper pathways and connectivity with each other as well and this is a great place to take a break between the two halves of our interview we'll be back with more fascinating information on alcohol and dr jeff berger after the break <laughs> And we are back with Dr. Jeff Berger here. Jeff, in setting up this interview, this is the question I wanted to ask because I've heard so many different answers. I grew up in a home, had no alcohol until I turned 21, even though beer was readily available. But yet we were never as kids given wine or anything at uh, special events. In my wife's family, they regularly were given wine at you know Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving. And then at a CMA meeting, I actually ended up uh, talking to a woman at my table who mentioned that no child should ever receive any alcohol be age of before the age of 21. So what's the best way to introduce and teach children in the home about alcohol? 
when should we, if at all, allow them to taste it or drink it, even in small quantities? Well, one of the things I think that you want to, yeah, that's a multi-layered question, Tom. So let me let me try and approach that um, from a number of different ways. Always keeping in mind again, I think family history of alcoholism is an important thing to consider. And whether there's a strong cultural, there are strong cultural rules about drinking uh, that would tend to moderate drinking, that also is important. And then as far as the place where you're living, uh, what the legal rules regarding alcohol use are, I think is also important. So bearing all of that in mind, if I have somebody who comes from a family where there's a high incidence, a high number of people who have drinking problems, um, my job as a parent begins becomes to teach my children um, that, number one, the people who are drinking and causing all kinds of behaviors in the family um, are doing so because they're drinking, not because they're bad people. That alcohol is a culprit. And that is, I think, is the most important message that a parent can get across in that kind of situation. Uh, that alcohol is the culprit. It's alcohol that's causing uh, abnormal behaviors, uh, violent behaviors, abusive behaviors, negligent uh, um, abandonment kind of behaviors that are very harmful and hurtful. Um, if the child can learn that it's alcohol that's the problem, then they stand a good chance of choosing what is good. Because I think children and adults, by and large, choose what is good for them. And so that they can understand that that concept, I think that that makes a big difference. So in that family, um, I would probably tend not to use alcohol uh, because I, I would want to let my children know that that I view myself as one of those people in my family that has a high risk of developing a problem with alcohol if I use it. If I'm in a culture and there are some cultures where moderate drinking, you know, a glass of wine, one glass of wine with an evening time meal is the cultural norm. <clears throat> and there aren't any um, uh, uh, family members that have any alcohol problem. And it's legal, uh, permitted for family members, you know, for me to give my children alcohol, then I don't see any problem in doing it uh, according to the cultural norms. I think we get into problems when uh, we might, for example, be living in a state where it's children are not supposed to be drinking alcohol, where the legal limit is 21 for alcohol. If we begin serving them alcohol at an earlier age, we're really teaching them that we know better, that we can do this on our own, that we can make our own decisions about this, that we don't have to. We're sort of undermining the, res the responsibility and the authority that the state has and we're teaching kids in some ways, I think, a disrespect for alcohol in, in those circumstances. Because if we're telling them it's okay when I say to do it, um, that's not really a good model for them uh, who will then think that it's okay when I say to do it, meaning they, the children, think it's okay to be doing it as well. Um, and then I think in mind, also one has to be keeping in, in consideration the fact that alcohol is a toxin and that um, in although we, we can drink small amounts of it without harm, if we are not careful and we don't, and there's a, a more alcohol being consumed or kept around, then it's, I think, is another message that gives, um, you give to children that alcohol is not all that harmless, that it's not as harmful as people say, that it is really relatively without harm, um, and people are just overblowing the concerns with drinking. Wow. That was a much deeper answer than I expected, but it was a good answer. It gives me a lot to think about. Well, well, let's move into what you spend most of your professional life dealing with, alcoholism. What is it? You know, I think probably the easiest concept uh, is an old concept that came up before any of the fancy DSM-5 criteria or anything like that. And uh, alcoholism was defined as in three, in th using three words that begin with C. One of the words was uh, consequences, and because what was noted is that people who are alcoholics began uh, to use uh, alcohol despite having negative consequences. So, for example, a person might drink, uh, black out at a party, uh, lose their keys to their car with un 
lose their wallet as a result of it, spend all their money at the bar, and then do the same thing in the next paycheck. Uh, if you stop and think about it, that's, that's a sign of some kind of impaired learning. Normally, when when things are harmful to ourselves, when they cause negative consequences, we learn from those experiences. Um, you, you only pick up a rose uh, with your bare hands and grab it tight once, right? <laughs> yes. But Hopefully. why does it, when alcohol causes you to throw up or get a headache or causes any of this, you know, behavioral problems that it causes the headache, why would people then do it again? So when you see people using, in spite of having had harmful experiences with alcohol, that's one thing that you have to think about is defines alcoholism. Another is, is uh, C word is, is compulsion. Uh, and that describes a, um, uh, as a drive to use alcohol, um, where you might, for example, um, tell yourself that, okay, I got into problems last time I went to Joe's bar and started drinking. So I'm just going to go into Joe's bar and drink a Coke this time and have a good time with all my friends there. But when you're inside the bar, there's this irresistible attraction for alcohol. And you find yourself with this, yeah, I, I can have just one. I can have just one. And that's, uh, that's probably the most basic description of what uh, the compulsive, the compulsive part of the drinking or the craving for alcohol. And the, the third one is loss of control. And this is a, a little bit more difficult to, to um, conceptualize because there is no group of el- people who tend to try to control their alcohol use more than alcoholics do. I'm gonna give uh. it up for Lent. I'm not gonna drink before five o'clock. I'm only gonna drink beer and I'm not gonna drink any liquor. Uh, what what, the, what this really refers to, and of course, nobody, an alcoholic can't stick with those kind of limitations, but what this is really referring to is unpredictability. So an alcoholic may go into Joe's bar and say, I'm going to have one drink tonight and wind up spending their entire paycheck there. Or they may go into Joe's bar, say, I'm not going to have any more than one drink and walk out and not have had a single drink. It's the unpredictability of what's going to happen when you start using alcohol. So who is most susceptible to developing alcoholism? So if I have to look at that again, the single biggest predictor, Tom, are are people who have family members who have problems with alcohol. Somehow... Back in the begin in the late 1700s, William Rush, one of the signers of the Decla- Declaration yes. of Independence, who was a physician, uh, wrote, "Drunkards beget drunkards." We don't have at this point in time the exact genetic mechanism whereby alcoholism develops, but if you look at all kinds of studies, uh, twins studies, twins raised apart studies, uh, children from alcoholic families raised apart from their families, if you look at sibship studies among uh, people with alcoholism, all of them point to a genetic influence. So probably that one of the clearest is if you look at identical twins who are raised apart, the concordance uh, between people who, um, between one twin having alcohol and the other twin having an alcohol problem as well, is about 30-35%. Okay. Now the general rate in the population is 10%, so this is clearly higher than one would expect by chance. But it's not like 100% like you'd get with sickle cell twins. It's more on the kind of multifactorial uh, genetics that you'd see with uh, hypertension, for example, or diabetes. So when you say a relative, what if neither parent has it, but say one or two grandparents, one on either side had it? Does that make the grandchildren more likely, even though neither parent has it? Absolutely. And I love that question. Tom, that's, that's really insightful. It frequently skips a generation. What happens okay. is that the child of the alcoholic, again, if they internalize the fact that drinking causes my parent to get crazy, then says, I am not going to drink at all because alcohol is dangerous. And they won't drink. And so you won't see, if you're not drinking, you don't see the disease. But then when so- their children grow up, Children don't have the experience of having grown up in an alcoholic household. 
and don't have that kind of warning system going off about alcohol. And when they start to experiment with alcohol, are at risk for developing the disease. And it appears to skip a generation then. Could everybody become an alcoholic or do you have to have some susceptibility? I think if you work hard enough at it, everybody could. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, the the more susceptible you are, the quicker it's going to come. Now, traditionally, we've thought about this in in, um, that there are probably some people that are never going to develop uh, alcoholism, despite how much they drink. But we know clearly there's, there's one type of alcoholic that develops the disease at a young age on a low exposure to alcohol. Those people almost always have um, a strong family history of alcoholism. And then those people also invariably, when I get them to start talking about their first drinking experience, relate an experience of euphoria uh, in some sort of way, in some sort of description. Um, you know, I felt it was a life of the party. It, it took away all my anxiety. I never felt better in my life. Those kinds of descriptions that clearly indicate that alcohol is causing some kind of um, mood-altering effect in, in a person. But there's another kind of alcoholic that, we've, again, we've known about for a long time that developed the disease after 20 or 30 years of drinking. Uh, and so after only relatively long exposure to alcohol and prolonged experience with alcohol, do they start to develop a problem? Um, interestingly, in our society now, we're also seeing the fact that people who might have been using drugs or alcohol problematically as they reach retirement age and get into the, the uh, conundrum of uh, not having a, a meaningful uh, motivation for life and, and are looking for leisure things and start using alcohol, they also are becoming quickly alcoholic. So after years uh-huh. and years of, of not drinking or, or only social drinking, they are becoming alcoholic rapidly in retirement. When they lose meaning in their lives. Yeah. A sense of meaning. So what might be a useful examination of conscience for us to determine if we're abusing alcohol? Um, probably the best examination of conscience would be to be able to have frank conversations with other people about your alcohol use because um, addiction protects itself, Tom. And once alcoholism is set in, the thinking in the brain is altered so that the person is generally incapable of recognizing the problems they're having by themselves. The best, the best examination of conscience is going to be to ask somebody else, um, what is my drinking like? We do that here at Guest House when people come in for treatment. Um, for example, a religious member of a religious community, we ask them to write back to their friends and people that they respect in the community to get an outside opinion of what their drinking was like. And most of the time, it is conveying information that they were totally incapable of seeing on their own. Ah, that's an excellent point. And what should we do if we see somebody uh, we're either related to, someone else we love, and we think they're abusing alcohol, what's the best thing we can do? You know, I think the best thing that we could do is just uh, to ask them if, if they think they have a problem with alcohol. And if they say yes, ask them if they want any help. And either way, if they want help or don't want help, we're probably going to need to refer to somebody who's able to understand the disease and treat it. So the thing that we could do to be helpful would be to look up um, some people in the area that might be able to um, do an evaluation and recommend any, that would be able to provide any treatment or provide a treatment recommendation if needed. And what's the best place to look for that? Um, you know, I have one place that I really like to go. It's a place, it's a website called Love First. Um, Deb and Jeff J run that website and I know them both. They're good Catholic people. Um, They have a variety of uh, resources for people on that website. Um, Going to um, a trusted practitioner, to a a physician or psychologist or therapist who know would be able to refer somebody to the proper person to get that referral done as well. Um, There might be a 
treatment program in the community that's well known where people can go get an evaluation done. What should we do if we are in the presence of somebody who has had too much alcohol? Because as I've learned, you can't reason with a person like that. What is the most loving thing to do? Tom, if we're in that kind of situation, you're right. You can't reason with the person. You can't control their behavior. I think much depends on whether, for example, if you're the host of a party where somebody's drinking too much, then you, you're going to have to be diplomatic and, <laughs> and careful. You might need sure. a bouncer there, or you might be able just to take the person aside and say, you know what, I think we're just cutting off the drinking for tonight um, and, and, and deal with their anger or irritability afterwards. Uh, uh, those kinds of things can get really ugly, though. But, and what if you're not the host? What if it's just somebody who keeps talking to you and the conversation goes nowhere? What what would you do in that situation? Again, it depends what, where your comfort level is, um, whether you, you you might be able to say, you know, um, I just am not, I'm not following this conversation. I, I don't know. It it, it just is, is, isn't going anywhere. And I'm not sure if it has anything to do with your drinking or not, but it's just, again, you have to know uh, what you can get away with and what you can't get away with, Tom, in those situations. Got it. What is the hope for someone who's addicted to alcohol? Oh, it's excellent. Yeah, it's, there are a few people who just are going to die of the disease, Tom, and that's been one of the saddest things I've seen in my life. Um, But there is always hope. Always hope. I haven't, it's rare that I have a person come into treatment that I'm not able to connect with the humanity and the divinity that resides within that person. Rare that I can't do that. So if somebody wants to get past alcoholism or to stop drinking despite alcoholism, it's highly possible. It is. Now there's a caveat with that. Because when if a person stops drinking alcohol, that can pose danger. Danger, physical danger. Um, alcohol withdrawal is life-threatening. If you think about it, there, people go into adrenergic hyper, hyperactivity. So their heart is racing, their blood pressure goes up, they, they're nauseated, they're not going to feel like drinking or eating, so they're getting volume depleted. And that's a setup for cardiovascular collapse. And if that doesn't happen, then there's also uh, the seizures, which are about 1% of people who are alcoholic and stop drinking. 1% to 2% of people will have a seizure, which can be life-threatening. And about 10 to 15% of people will develop delirium, which is also life-threatening. So it's it's important that if a person is drinking uh, on, on a regular basis, that they be evaluated to see whether or not they need to be treated for uh, withdrawal or not. Safety. And so they get to that transition can be made safely. That's excellent advice. You know, there is the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It defines alcoholism as an illness, which only a spiritual experience will conquer. How is that important? Oh, yeah. And it also says, uh, Tom, that um, it says we were we were physically, emotionally, and spiritually sick, and the malady only begins to reverse after we be, get spiritually well. The emotional and the physical part follow behind. Addiction, in in its essence, is a a place where God is not. A person has devoted all of their energies all of their resources, in, in this case, into drinking. People lose everything along the way. And only a realization that there is a need for change and allowing God in to make that change can turn things around. I can give you an example. Um, just a quick, I have a friend who's got 30 years in recovery and uh, I'm not going to use his real name, but Harry, um, Harry went that road. Um, Harry was an alcoholic. Uh, his wife was an alcoholic. Uh, they both went to jail separately. The kids got taken by protective services. Obviously, he lost his job. 
the judge um, told him, if you go into a halfway house, um, I'll, I'll let you out of jail quick, more quickly. So he chose to go into an alcohol halfway house. Yes. Um, of course, he couldn't drink, So, but he wasn't really in recovery. He was just kind of not drinking and being his usual hairy self. Um, ah. And um, and his intent was, well, I'll get this, I'll play the game, and as soon as they get out, then I'll just go back to my old life again. One day when he came home on his porch were two people with a brown, two men with a brown paper bag and a bottle sticking out of the bag. And they were passing it back and forth with each other. And he stood there looking at them and he said, man, there's a couple of drunks. <laughs> and then all of a sudden there was that moment of grace, Tom. And he said, all of a sudden I realized I was those two people. Aha. Uh -huh. That's where his self-will broke, where his self-delusions broke, and where God was able to enter in. And that was the beginning of his sobriety. He's been sober 30 years since. Oh, thanks be to God. And it Jeff? didn't start all at once, Tom, but I'll tell you that um, it was about five years after working AA, and listen, which is a spiritual program, that he began to feel the need for something more about uh, more of God in his life and to learn more about God. And he started going to a fundamentalist church. And then he went to another church. And he went to another church. He kept on having problems and problems. And then somebody invited him to their local men's group in a Catholic church. And he's now Catholic. There was a dynamic within his AA program that drove him to seek a greater, really, always a deeper relationship with God. And he found it in the Catholic Church. He's he is loving the novenas and the chaplets and everything else that the Catholic Church has to offer. He just loves it all. And Jeff, last thirty seconds, best resources you can recommend for listeners. For best resource for for our listeners. Yeah, again, the website that I talked about, Love First, uh, by Deb and Jeff J. They've just got tons and tons of good resources there. Jeff, thanks for being with us on this episode of Dr. Doctor, educating me and hopefully everybody else about alcohol and alcoholism. God bless you. Thanks, Tom. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor and welcome to the answer to the medical trivia question, which is, you might have guessed it, on alcohol. So to summarize, what level of alcohol and the study that Tom mentioned earlier was associated with the highest volume of brain destruction or gray matter loss? And each drink was equivalent to one ounce. Was it zero, one, two, three, or four drinks per day, Tom? So the greatest amount of gray matter that people had was associated with no drinking. In other words, there was no, quote, safe level of alcohol or best level of alcohol for brain function. The more you drink, the more you lost in terms of your gray matter abilities. Well, Tom, that's pretty sobering. Arr, arr, arr. <laughs> we, and I officially apologize for that joke, but I still approve of it. <laughs> I mean, it so is. Chris, the, the we, idea. Have some, uh, we have some uh, three key takeaways from this episode. We do. I mean, that's a good segue. I mean, that really is pretty sobering. Uh, I mean, this idea, I think one of the top three has to be that even a small amount of alcohol can have a negative impact quite literally on your brain uh, and on destroying a percentage of your brain. And I don't know about you, but I don't feel like I have extra brain percentage up there that I can afford to get rid of. So we're not necessarily saying no one should drink, but we should and, and we do want to convey, I think, that there's no safe amount of alcohol that we know of or that we can prove. At least as far as health of our various organs goes. And I think another really important takeaway is this cultural idea that, um, you know, the Europeans are so smart because they teach, if you will, their children to, to drink gradually through their formative years, and therefore they're not as likely to develop problems with alcohol. Well, it turns out that may or may not be true. There's not really great support for that. Um, and along with that finding, this idea that alcoholism, the genetic aspect of alcoholism, may skip generations. So you thinking just because your parents were not alcoholics that you're somehow safe uh, from the disease, that isn't necessarily based in fact. And number three, Chris? 
And I think probably the, the most important is what are some of the signs that you yourself or a loved one or a colleague may be struggling with alcoholism or something leading to alcoholism? And he talked about the three C's, consequences, compulsion, and control. Are there negative consequences happening in your life or your, your loved one's life because of alcohol? Is there a sense of a compulsion to drink? Uh, not so much I want to drink, but I need a drink. That's an important distinction. Um, and is there some sense of loss of control when drinking? Those should all be really red flags for yourself, for your spouse, for your loved ones, that it's time to get serious and start talking about this deadly, deadly disease. That's a great summary, Chris, and we thank you, our listeners, for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. We invite you to share the good news of this show with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And we hope you'll be sure to rate our show while you're there. It helps listeners find us. You can also find any and all of our episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.